Job chapter 1. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses. This week we will be picking up in verse 13 as we walk through the book of Job. This morning. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer. He was a quite successful lawyer who lived in the mid-1800s. Many of you are probably familiar with the name. In 1873, Spafford decided to take a vacation with his family. And they, being Americans, decided that they would go to England for this vacation. Spafford, Horatio Spafford, was delayed due to his business as a lawyer, and so In keeping with their schedule, he chose to send his family along without him, and he would catch up with them when he was finished with his business there, and he would catch up with them in England. So he sent his wife of 12 years, as well as their four daughters, ages 11, 9, 5, and 2, and he stayed in Chicago. It was on November 22nd of 1873, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a steamship, that that steamship that the Spafford family was on was hit by an iron sailing vessel and capsized. 226 people lost their lives, including all four of the Spafford's children, all four of his daughters. The rescue crew took the survivors and made it safely to England, after which his wife sent him a telegram that said, Saved alone. And he knew at that time that his four daughters were dead. You know, there are times in our lives where we, as human beings, become exposed. We see our vulnerabilities. In spite of perhaps the money that we have or the comfort that we have, the health that we have, at some point in our lives, we all end up facing our own fragility, our own frailty. We all end up coming to a point where we recognize exactly how vulnerable we as human beings really are. What do we do when we come to realize just how weak we are? Just how temporary our lives are? Just how real tragedy can truly be in our lives? How do we respond to such situations? What should our response be to tragedy as it comes into our lives? Well, this morning from Job 1, verses 13 through 22, we're going to look at three lessons from this passage concerning the circumstances in our lives and the opportunity that we have to respond to those circumstances when they come about. Three lessons from Job 1. Let's read the passage together. I'll read it. Please follow along. Job 1, beginning in verse 13, we'll read through the end of the chapter. And there was a day when his, meaning Job's, sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, They have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants 
with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Our first of three lessons we're going to learn from this passage this morning is found in verses 13 through 19. And the first lesson is this, your life is fragile. Your life is fragile. Following the conversation between God and Satan, a conversation which we had uh, looked at in depth and at length last week, we return back to earth back to Job's material circumstances. The scene opens with Job's sons and daughters eating and drinking in the eldest brother's house. What we see here is a family that we might call a good family, a strong family. We don't know everything about this family. We don't know much about this family at all. But what we do know is that the brothers and sisters were eating and drinking together. There did not seem to be any contention between them. We might call this a a good, strong family in our day and age. As we see them communing one with another, certainly Job, as we recall from last time, was active in ensuring that his children were were right with the Lord and that his family and his own heart were right with the Lord. It's a good family. But then in verse 14, things begin to fall apart for Job. Verse 14 describes a messenger that comes to Job relaying some bad news. The oxen were plowing, the asses were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. They have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and he is the only man that had escaped to tell him. The Sabaeans were a Semitic people group. They were living up in the area of Haran, as best we can understand from uh, history at the time. Haran was the area at the top of the Fertile Crescent where Abraham journeyed to from Ur up to Haran before he made his journey down into Canaan. And the Sabians were from that area, from that land. They had fallen upon Job's oxen and asses, slew the servants, and took his possessions. But it doesn't end there. It says, while that man was yet speaking, while he was yet relaying these terrible circumstances to Job, another man came in verse 16, and he said that the fire of God had fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep, as well as the servants that were watching them. Now, we see various places in the scripture where we can interpret the fire of God to be a supernatural fire. Here, we're not quite sure what this fire of God was. It could perhaps have been lightning, as we understand from numerous historical accounts that the fire of God often, uh, that men interpreted lightning to be fire of God. It would make more sense in this context, particularly because we see a second natural disaster happening with the house that Job's children were in, if we are tying these themes together, we see a enemy, then a natural disaster, then an enemy, and then a natural disaster that is facing Job. So we can interpret that to be supernatural fire. We can interpret that to be lightning. Personally, in this context, I do not have trouble either way. I do not believe it changes the efficacy of the passage as well. But either way, these sheep 
and the servants were consumed with fire. Verse 17 says that while that man was yet speaking, another servant came. Job now has lost his oxen, his asses, the servants that were with them. He has lost his sheep and the servants that were with them. And they come and they give a report and say, the Chaldeans made three bands. They took the camels and they killed your servants. Now the Chaldeans were a group actually from the other end of the Fertile Crescent. Haran would have been the area where the Sabians were from. The Chaldeans were from that area of Ur, down near where the Tigris and the Euphrates meet. The area today that we know as Iraq, the area at the time that would have been the area of Babylon uh, in, in the, the years to come. Same area where Babel was made, where Nimrod ruled. From that area, the Chaldeans came. They took his camels. They killed his servants. He's lost his oxen. He's lost his asses. He's lost his sheep. He's lost his camels. And he's lost all of his servants that were hired to tend them. Finally, in verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came also another. It says that his sons and his daughters were dining together in the eldest brother's house and a wind came and it was a great wind and it smote the four corners of the house and it caused the house to fall on top of them and they were all killed. All of Job's children, all of Job's possessions gone like that one day. And so we learn that life is, in a word, fragile. All that we have in this life today may be gone tomorrow. In one day, seemingly in a matter of hours, Job lost his crops, his herds, his sheep, his servants, and his family. All of those things in the life that he had gained through time and through effort had been gone in a moment. And as we consider this lesson, we must remember that there's no guarantee of tomorrow. We all live under various circumstances in this room. We all have varying degrees of possessions, various sizes of families, various amounts of material goods that we call our own. But what we must understand about these possessions, these goods, and this family is that none of them are guaranteed to last through the day. It's almost impossible for me to fathom the idea that I could wake up one morning and find that my family and all of my worldly possessions are gone. But the reality of the situation is that I am only perhaps one house fire or one terrible car accident away from such a tragedy in my life. Now, I am not saying these things this morning to put you in some state of paranoia. I am not saying these things this morning so that you have a grand phobia of everything. And I'm certainly not saying these things to, in, with the intent of depressing or discouraging you this morning. But as we consider the circumstances of Job this morning, we must recognize that life is very fragile. We live in a world of tremendous conveniences. We live in a world of tremendous health benefits. We live in a world that has wonderful opportunities to the point where, at least in our culture, in Western culture, the concept of early loss of life, the idea of major possessions being lost are exceptions to the rule. When we hear of great tragedies of children losing their lives young, as has happened in these past few weeks, we say, what a tragedy for someone so young to lose their life. Certainly in some parts of the world it's not that way. But we understand from the book of Job that life is fragile. All of the technology that we have, all of the knowledge that we have, all of the safety regulations we have, none of it can change the fact that any man, any woman, any child can pass into eternity at any time. 
So life is fragile. Verses 13 through 19 tell us that very clearly. But there's another important lesson that we need to learn from this passage this morning about those earthly possessions that we do have in this life. And that is, secondly, you can't take them with you. Life is fragile, but all of those things, all of those things that we accumulate, even our family, in a manner of speaking, we can't take them with us. Now, if we're believers, we know that we'll see our family again. But eternity, death, is very individual. And you can't take those things with you. How would you respond if after this service you received a phone call or a police visit that told you that the very closest people to you in your life had been killed? How would you respond if as you're entering your neighborhood after church one morning you see the fire department there and you find out that your house and all of the possessions that are in it had been completely destroyed. How did Job respond when his livelihood, his servants, his animals, and his children were all taken from him in one day? Well, the scriptures tell us in verse 20 that he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down upon the ground and he worshipped. Job rent his mantle, he shaved his head. In the culture of the day, this would have been the very deepest expression of personal sorrow. It would have been an expression of intense grief. I think sometimes, perhaps, maybe not with you, maybe, our familiarity with this passage can bring us to a point where sometimes we can interpret Job as handling this very well. Uh, he says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and we forget about that first part. We forget about the part where he rent his mantle, where he shaved his head, where he fell down upon the ground. We forget that though God is in control, though Job recognized God's hand, Job was still in great grief. Job was still torn at his loss. I've mentioned this before. Say, Pastor, it's getting ad nauseum. I'm sorry, but you need to hear it. I've heard many pastors say before, I've asked a man how he's doing, and he says, I'm doing well under the circumstances. And I tell him, what are you doing under the circumstances? You shouldn't be there. And I can understand where the pastor is going with that, but may I just refocus that a little bit. Circumstances touch us in this life. We, as Christians, just because we know God is in control, just because we know that there's a God in heaven and he works all things together for good, doesn't mean that we can just harden our hearts to, to sorrow. Doesn't mean that circumstances aren't going to touch us. And doesn't mean we shouldn't allow circumstances to touch us. The difference is what we do in light of those circumstances. The difference is how we react in light of our sorrow. The difference is the hope that we have in the midst of our sorrow. And so Job is greatly sorrowed here. But notice what he does. Aside from just falling upon the ground and rending his mantle, shaving his head, it says he worshipped. Now it's regrettable to me that many in this room were not able to be present for our teaching in Sunday school on worship because it's something that every believer needs to hear. Worship is one of the most misunderstood and distorted words 
in modern Christian culture today. And it is imperative that we understand what it means to worship. Modern Christian culture holds to the notion that worship is about you. That worship is contingent upon your emotions. And that worship has its purpose in fostering in your heart positive feelings. To that end, modern Christianity rejects any worship if it doesn't meet their interests. If it doesn't comply with what they think is enjoyable. Because they believe worship is about them. And if they're not having fun or if they're not interested, then they're not going to do it. Modern Christianity rejects worship that doesn't get them emotionally excited or stimulated because worship should get them in the zone. Modern Christianity rejects worship that doesn't leave them feeling closer to God or better about their relationship with God and about the circumstances that surround them. Simply stated, that is not the definition of biblical worship. Now, worship can and often is emotional. Worship can be and often does touch our feelings. But these are not essential elements of worshiping God. Worship of God is coming to God on His terms, in His way, in conformity to His character for the purpose of His glory. Let me say that again. Worship is coming to God on His terms, in His way, in conformity to His character for the purpose of His glory. Biblical worship has nothing to do with making you feel good about yourself. Biblical worship has nothing to do with how emotionally excited you get. Biblical worship is not about you. Worship isn't about you. Worship is about God. Worship is about glory to God. Worship is about coming to God on his, in His way, on His terms, in conformity with His character, and for His glory. And so Job, in the deepest sorrow, worships. Job is not worshiping to make himself feel better about having lost everything that he has in this life. Job is not worshiping through some emotional ecstasy that compels him. Job is not worshiping so that when he arises, he'll be able to see his circumstances in a better light. What Job is doing is he is falling down upon the ground and he is justifying God's goodness in the midst of his suffering. He is bringing glory to God in the midst of his troubles and trials and tribulations. He is saying, God, in spite of my sorrow, in spite of my circumstances, in spite of the losses I have just received, your name is blessed. In spite of everything, you are God. So Job cries, the Lord gave... And the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. May I just paraphrase what he's saying here? As he falls down upon the ground and worships, he is extolling the character of God. He says, yes, I lost all that I have in this life. Yes, I will go down to the grave with nothing but that which I, with I was born. Yes, by material standards, men would call me ruined. Yes, I am in terrible grief. Yes, the fragility of this life has left me physically barren. But none of this changes the fact that God is just, that God is righteous, that God is good, and that God's name is blessed. 
And that leads us to our third and final lesson. We need to understand that life is fragile. We need to understand that the things we have in this life, we can't take them with us. But third and finally this morning, in verses 21 and 22, we need to understand that changes never change God. Changes in this life do not change God. We live in a world of change. I am a scant 27 years old as I stand before you in the pulpit. Let me make myself sound a little older. I'm 27 and a half years old right now. Now for many of us in this room, you look at me and you say, wow, you've barely just begun. And it's true. Lord willing. Lord willing, I've barely just begun. And yet, even in my youth, I can say that I have seen a great deal of changes in my lifetime. I can remember, I can physically remember days without cell phones. I can still remember days without computers. Now, this generation can't. I still can. So I've seen some changes. I've seen some dramatic changes within my days. I remember having to plan out when you go to the store when you're going to be home and what route you're going to take because there's no cell phone to call someone and say, hey, I'm going to be home at this time. I'm going to stop by the store. Do you need something? I had to, I, we had to ask if someone wanted something before we left the house if we were going to stop by the store or find a pay phone. I can remember these things. And so I, I, I've seen my fair share of changes. But you know, more than simply technology, people change. Times change. Families change. I remember when my sister first went off to college. This is many years ago now, my older sister. And we took our first family vacation without her. This is the first time we'd ever taken a family vacation without one of the family. And I realized at that time that my family had changed forever. That things were no longer as they once were. And then I went off to college. And family vacations were just my parents and my younger sister. Things changed. Change happens in this world. People move on. People pass away. Simple becomes complicated. Slow becomes fast. If we allow it, these things can become quite discouraging. Yet as Job falls upon the ground and worships God, following his own personal tragedy, following probably the greatest change that he's ever experienced in his own life, he says, naked came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. We came into this world with nothing and it is sure we will leave with nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord take away, hath taken away, excuse me. God has just as much right to take away from us as he has to give to us. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you see the difference between those first two phrases and that Final phrase. He says, naked came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. This first statement speaks of a change in time, but no real change in circumstances. You're born, you're dead, you, can't, you came with nothing, you left with nothing. A change in time, but no change in circumstances. The second statement speaks of a change in circumstances regardless of time. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Circumstances change throughout time. But that third statement, do you see a statement of change in that third declaration? There is no statement of change, is there? It's simply, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, things change. 
We are young, we're old, we live, we die. Things change. We gain in this life, we lose in this life. But one thing doesn't change. That's the God we serve. That the name of our God is blessed. Why? Because God is always the same. If God does not change, then God is the same regardless of our circumstances. If God is good in the midst of our abundance, then an unchanging God is good in the midst of our lack. If God has been good when my children are alive and smiling, then God has not changed if my children pass away. If God was good when I was in perfect health, he doesn't stop being good when I am sick. That was Job's declaration. Things change, but God does not. Job's statements serve to remind us that we serve a God who is always the same. He is our rock in the midst of all the changes in our lives. He is the one constant that we can always be assured of. When our circumstances change, the same God is in heaven. In the days of greatest joy, God is there. In the midst of our deepest sorrow, God is present and he still sits on the throne. And that is what we can describe in this passage as Job's worship. His worship had nothing to do with him and had everything to do with extolling the nature of the God who didn't change in the midst of everything else that changed around him. In spite of himself, in spite of how he feels, in spite of how he wants to feel, his worship was going to justify God in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his tribulations, and in the midst of his trouble. Take you back to the man Horatio Spafford as we close this morning. After hearing the news of his four daughters who had died, he got on a boat and sailed to England to meet his wife. The story goes that as he, as the boat got over the spot where his four daughters perished, he asked the boat to stop, and the boat stopped there, and as he was standing over that spot, he penned the words of a very familiar song to us, the song, It Is Well. We're going to sing that song this morning as our Sila. We'll sing it in a little bit. I'll give you the numbers we get there. As we do so, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what, I'm going to read these words this morning so that as we're singing it, we won't have to necessarily be applying two concepts. Let me read some of the words to the song that he wrote, and I want you to think about the context in which he wrote these words. He is standing over the spot where his four daughters, ages 11, 9, 5, and 2, perished in the sea. Listen to these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. 
The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He wrote those words as he stood over the last resting place of his daughters. He met his wife in England. They would go on to have three more children. They would have a daughter in 1878, a son in 1880, and another daughter in 1881. Now the tragedy would not end for the Stafford family there. In 1884, four years after their son was born, he died of scarlet fever. Five of those seven children passing away. Ironically, the church that he attended thought that this last tragedy was the final mark of God's judgment upon Horatio Spafford. And just as we'll see in the book of Job, where his comforters come and tell him that the reason for his trials was because of his sin, when there was no sin in his life, as far as the testimony, as far as we know, in Horatio Spafford's life, he was a God-fearing man. And yet the church that he attended interpreted his tragedy as divine judgment. But we see in this man Horatio Spafford, a man who, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his loss, found it in his heart to justify God. Found it in his spirit to praise the name of the God that he served in the midst of the most tragic of circumstances. May God give us the grace to do the same in our own lives. May God give us the determination to worship Him in the midst of our suffering. Whether things are going great or things are going poorly. Whether circumstances are wonderful or we're in the midst of tragedy. To remember that we serve an unchanging God. Yes, life is fragile. We need to remember that. Yes, we cannot take it with us. We need to know that. But believers in this room today, in the midst of life's changes, frailties, God has never once changed.